Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. Today, we are with Michael, our resident ephesiologist, Andrew Johnson, associate pastor at Neartown Church in Houston, Texas. And look who's back. I'm Matt Till. Hey, boys. Hey, my good to goodness. all be back. It's it really funny is. you were looking, you were looking down to make sure you knew who all was here. Yeah, I was like, yeah. wait a minute. Wait <laughs> how do minute. I? How do I? What, who, how do I? Who are these people again? What's what what's are their his names? name again? <laughs> what's Andrew's last name again? Yeah, I got it. Got it. Yeah, I was checking my notes again. Just like, oh man, it's been a while. It's been a while. It's been a hot it minute. It's been. Yeah. Uh, Guys, it's great to be with you again on the uh, Ephesiology podcast. I'm glad that we get to talk today and to see each other's faces. And uh, obviously for our listeners, um, um, you're probably just listening and not watching uh, today, but that's okay too. Um, what is on our agenda for today, Michael? Yeah, well, we're starting a sort of a mini series, I suppose, on uh, theological education and particularly education as it's relating to church planting. So I'm excited uh, this week to introduce the topic, and, and then next week um, we'll have your boss on, Dr. Scott Manor. I don't like to of- refer to him as my boss, and I don't think he would actually prefer that either, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, so what you're saying him. is that's yeah. exactly what I need to say to him every single time I address him <laughs> on the pod. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't think he would. I don't think he would like that necessarily. He's a bit unconventional in uh, in in some of his uh, the way. He actually, he, he insists that we call him uh, by his first name around the office, and that took that took a little while too. And anyway, yes, the president of Knox Theological Seminary, uh, El is oh. yeah, uh, Doctor Scott Manor uh, Manor. I'm sorry, Doctor Scott Manor will be on uh, the podcast next week. So we're looking forward to interviewing him and talking okay. more about theological education. But today we're going to explore that idea a little bit further, aren't we, Michael? Yeah, we are. Well, the following week, we have uh, the president of Kairos University on, uh, Greg Henson, uh, who's going to join us. And then I'm working on seeing who else we can get to speak into this, because this is such an important topic. And I think what spurred me on to this, Matt, is an article that you sent from the Association of Theological Schools. And I was uh, just really amazed by that, um, looking at, uh, you know, the state of theological education in in uh, North America Michael, and excited about for, it. Well, uh, for those who don't have that article in front of them, could you summarize uh, the gist of the article and why it captured your attention so? Yeah, well, you know, they're reporting that they have the highest numbers of seminary students ever in the 100 and what, I think, 23 year history of ATS. Uh, students actually enrolled in degree programs. Now, they've had more students uh, enrolled in semer- seminary in general. Uh, several years ago, something like 80,000 or, or so, just north of 80,000. But um, but that wasn't in degree programs. And uh, this study is indicating that there are more students enrolled in degree programs than ever before in the history of ATS. And, and that's exciting. 
But it's also kind of a paradox too, because there are some seminaries that are just doing fantastic. And then there are others that aren't doing as well. And so there's uh, uh, some interesting dynamics, I think, going on in, in the area of theological education. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that uh, next week, especially with, with Scott and the week after that with Greg. Okay. So when you, let me jump in here just to say, so when you say some seminaries are doing well and some seminaries aren't, are you referring to the quality of the uh, individual on their exit from the seminary? Are you talking about uh, the sustainability financially of the seminaries? Like when you say a seminary is doing well, what do you mean by that? Enrollments are up. uh, Endowments are up. Numbers of those graduating annually are up. I think those would all be indicators of a seminary doing well. And Matt, you would you could speak into this more. You're you're right, actually, on the paradox because um, recent news is actually showing some of the more traditional seminaries, especially even in the evangelical world, have actually been in steep decline. But those declines actually began pre-pandemic, and so you're actually beginning to deal with the ramifications of. Uh, whether it be uh, just because of endowments, donor base, student base, student, and you know things like that are just all of a sudden kind of really dramatically in decline. Uh, broadly, is actually producing a bit of a paradox. But there, the the data shows though a number of degree seeking students in seminaries, meaning seminaries that are also offering MA degrees mm. and not so much the MDiv. So the MDiv programs are continuing to see a decline, but the MA degree programs are increasing. Whether that be a, a Bible and theology degree or maybe uh, some other type of uh, like minded degree or something else a little bit more specialized. So with that, there seems to be an interest, and also I think fueling that growth is also record number of demon degree programs. Yeah. Yep. So the doctorate of ministry degree program. So that means that would be somebody who's already got a MA or an MDiv, maybe serving in a pastorate or some other type of professional uh, capacity has life experience on this individual and is looking to continue their education and pursue a doctorate of ministry degree, which um, part of that actually ATS um Uh, changed some of their guidelines in their rules around that, which has actually allowed for more students to begin to pursue demon programs at a lot of schools. Uh, Knox Theological Seminary, who I represent um, and work for, is one of those that was able to benefit from that. So um, we've also seen a similar increase in number of students and degree-seeking students at Knox because of that. Just because I'm a nerd, what were those changes, right? Like, what were those changes that now have benefited many in the demon Um, track? that, that'll be a great question for uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Maynard next week, but um, I, I don't, so I don't have the complete list, but they're, they have actually reduced the, the ability to, or the need to have a uh, master of divinity degree, first of all, was the big one. So you could have a MA degree of a certain uh, number of credits to be able to enter into a demon program um, with combined with life experience or some other type of professional experience and, and other things that you would need to prove uh, to demonstrate that you are of a doctoral candidate, but that was the most significant one. And that was inhibiting a number of people from pursuing uh, a demon program was the lack of the master divinity program. So they're talking now about the MDiv equivalents. So you still have to have at least a similar number of hours yes. equal to the MDiv, but not the actual degree itself. 
Right. I think the, the other factor too, and I, I think this comes out even in the ATS article, uh, is the the, non, the the residential requirement has been waived as well. Yeah. So now uh, programs can offer the DMIN without requiring students to relocate to a campus or to come to the campus every once in a while. They can do yeah. these completely online or in cohorts where they are or you know places like that. So um, it, so yeah, a lot of really it, I think ex- positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've ATS has really expanded a lot of their flexibility um, and their ability for the accreditation side. So, and that seems to be uh, consistent with what we're finding is students want flexibility. They want students who want to grow in theology and and grow in in their field or in their knowledge and education. They they want education that's going to be able to be delivered to them on their terms and. Um, they would like the flexibility. They they don't want to upend their life and move across the country to go pursue, you know, and, and spend a lot of money on a degree program uh, that they're going to have to go find a new job for and things like that. And so they're looking for flexibility. Um, and it, it's nice to see even the accrediting bodies are beginning to adapt to that and uh, see that across the board. And, you know, ATS too, I mean, they represent all theological schools, so they're not just representing um, Christian evangelical. So the data is a from a, a wide range of anyone who gives out seminary level theological degree programs too. So that's just something else just to, to take note of as well too. When we're talking about theological education, is this, um, especially the way that we're, we are talking about it, specifically for somebody like myself who got an MA degree, but really didn't want to go for the full MDiv route, um, is it just for the the super churchy type, right? Like, are, are we talking about theological education for the people who see themselves as lifers working in the institutionalized church? Um, or are we talking about theological education that is meant more for the, for the everyman who is looking to ground themselves a little more solidly? Well, I think you, I think that's what we're seeing. Um, when we have Greg Henson on, he, he I'm sure is going to talk about the increased enrollments in the MA program at Kairos University, and they're not people who want to go into full time ministry, but they're people in the workplace who just want to go a little bit deeper in in their faith and in their theological education, and to have the tools that they need to engage people in their workplace or to engage issues. Um, that they're confronting uh, culturally or socially, and uh, and so that's a that's a positive thing. I, th- I think it's actually an exciting thing to see. You know, and, and we're we're seeing that too as well at Knox, and and just seeing a number of, of people wanting to study whether it's just hey, I want to be a pastor, I want to be in the church, or I just want to serve in some other sort of capacity. Even those who are on their second careers, you know, or maybe they're even in retirement. It's actually very very common for those to kind of enter into retirement and then say, well, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? And I want to go back and get a degree. And uh, they're commonly looking for theological education, especially if they've been really invested in their church or maybe taking up some sort of leadership role as a volunteer, you know, within their church, maybe a church elder or deacon or something of that nature. And, you know, their pastor's like, well, you know, you've got the time (laughs) and we could really use somebody who could really know, uh, know how to you know, read God's word and teach it and um, explain it to other people. Um, and so a lot of times they kind of point them towards a seminary education, which is also very common. 
And actually, I think it is kind of kind of the framework a little bit for some of the things that we were hoping to kind of get to today. And uh, talking about even specifically is how does theological education relate to the growth of the Christian movement and importance? And um, even as somebody who's thinking about maybe considering church planting, you know, there's a big movement out there of church planters that um, that that are looking for education and some that are not at all. <laughs> as a matter of fact, I've encountered this and, and I'm, I think a, you guys have too. That was a really nice way to be curious that. to hear. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, like I, you know, I'd be curious to hear what you guys think about this, but I, I know like when I was actively planting a church and being in these circles more, it was interesting. You'd run into some who like went kind of a traditional route, got their master of divinity and then realized, Hey, that's really a place for me in my current church context or denomination, but I am going to think about church planting or they've encouraged me to do that. So I'm going to go pursue that and feeling very inequipped for it. Um, that might be one route. Uh, some people may like, I have a calling and I, I feel like I really want to, this is what the Lord's put on my heart. And then I want to go get educated to make sure I kind of know what I'm talking about. And then there's a whole other stream of, of those who are out church planting that are very entrepreneurial driven, but literally have very limited, you know, Bible knowledge or, you know, theological education and, um, uh, you know, maybe might have an undergrad Bible degree, but then have an aversion to seminary actually, um, or an aversion to theological, further for theological education, um, as if it's some sort of uh, weight that slows them down or, or some sort of a thing that, you know, causes them to lose, lose their faith or something. You know, I've kind of heard these things. I, I don't know, like, I don't feel like I've, I've heard that stated too often recently, but I know that that was pretty common uh, to hear over the last, you know, maybe four or five, six years ago. Michael, what do you still hear that? Is that still kind of a common, um, you know, common response to theological education among church planters? I, uh, I don't know how common it is among church planters. It's definitely there. Uh, and it, and it uh, comes from this idea that, you know, we're all called to be disciple makers. I mean, that seems clear in scripture uh, that Jesus uh, commanded uh, to, as you're going, make disciples. And that wasn't something exclusive just to the apostles, but it was intended for all of us to be disciple makers. And so there's that, uh, that's, that is in the minds of many entrepreneurial uh, types of church planters. And that's great. I, I mean, I was that when I went to uh, begin a church planting work in Romania in the 1990s. Um, I thought that I needed a seminary education. And in fact, I was prepared to, and I was actually moving back to the States uh, to settle uh, at a seminary to, uh, to get the training that I thought that I needed to do church planting when a pastor said, you know, you, you've already been equipped. You know how to make disciples. I had been on staff with crew and uh, was very familiar with evangelism, discipleship, and how to follow people up and, and so forth. And so he said, you really don't need anything else. That's what a church planter is somebody who can do evangelism and discipleship and follow up people and, and uh, help them grow in their faith. But, you know, as I look back on that experience, and of course, hindsight is 2020, isn't it? I think, boy, I could have really benefited from the, the education that I have now, uh, back then. Now, it, of course, there's no way to go back and change history. 
Um, but uh, I do realize just from my experience that I made a lot of mistakes in church planting. Yes, we did evangelism and discipleship. We followed up. Uh, we saw seven churches start in seven different cities. And some of those were multiplying uh, small groups all around their cities. And it was, it was exciting. But I also uh, recognized that um, what I ended up doing was, in essence, planting a Western uh, North American church in a predominantly Orthodox country. Uh, and, and, and because of that, um, made, made some mistakes along the way that could have been adverted. I think if I would have, uh, had a little bit more training now, I did go back of course, and do theological education about midway through, uh, our first, uh, stint in, in Romania. And that was life-changing for me. Um, and, and I really benefited from having had the experience on the field in doing church planting uh, to really think about that and have the space to think about that. And, uh, and then to bring that, that education back to the mission field uh, was very beneficial. So, yeah, I, I mean, there are good, good uh, things about theological education and and uh, I suppose some bad things about theological education as well. And especially when, you know, we have a mixed up view of what it means to do theological education. And I, th I think that's th probably the most common misperception that people have is that, and, and, you know, us who have been theological educators, I suppose, are partly uh, guilty uh, of this that uh, we've we've given the impression that it's an academic exercise and uh and you know the theological educators that i know if we were to talk with them they would say you know it's not just an academic exercise uh but but uh it's turned out to be that so seminaries have done a fantastic job turning out academics uh and and not as not as good uh, of turning out practitioners yeah, everything um, that you're saying is exactly, I mean, you're, you're putting into words some of my own frustrations. Um, and you, I, shoot, you actually heard this from me uh, 15 plus years ago, more, 17. I mean, when I was leaving uh, undergrad, um, again, God bless them, but some of the seminarians on the other side of the campus uh, at TEDS were the reasons I didn't want to go to seminary because I didn't see a bunch of practitioners. What I saw were a bunch of academics that were getting degrees for the sake of degrees or what, that's how it's now here's the thing. It was the stigma that was there. And that's how it came across to the very young and severely arrogant Andrew uh, at that stage in my life. And so, but I'd said, I don't want, I don't want to do seminary period. I had no intent because everything that I had seen had turned me off of that. And I said, I, I don't, I really don't want that. And it wasn't until I got into ministry, had already been a part of a failed church plant, uh, was looking into what more God had that I saw. I actually, I actually really need some solid theological education to be the practitioner that I want to be. And I don't know what it's going to take for those of us who desire to be theological educators 
to help break down that stigma so that more and more people are going to see this is going to help you live out your faith. This is going to help you uh, disciple others to evangelize well, uh, to, to lead the churches, not in a full, now you are a pastor capacity, uh, but to be the solid leader that is taking your place in what God has for you locally there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think you're right. I, I think one of the changes that we're seeing in uh, theological education, and, and I think uh, to, to some, at some level to uh, the credit of people like Scott Maynard and Greg Henson and others, is that theological education needs to become more accessible to people. And that's one of the reasons why uh, the church planters who are very entrepreneurial in what they're doing, they're not, they don't want to relocate to go to seminary. And that's been the traditional model that you have to actually move and displace yourself from your place of ministry to, to attend seminary. And so seminaries like Knox, who is taking theological education to the church and, and Kairos, whose focus is on making theological education accessible from where people are, are, it will have a far greater impact on the theological education model of the future. We could uh, maybe talk about a little bit as to how the state of theological education kind of got to this point. Um, you know, historically speaking, um, the, the church is who created and developed the seminary, right? Um, and education has kind of evolved as in some ways, actually, it hasn't, <laughs> I suppose, I'm kind of answering my own question here. But like, you know, th there was a sense of the need to educate the masses um, in regard to uh, pursuit of education uh, through the Renaissance period. And, you know, Michael, I think you're gonna, you're gonna kind of know more about this. And, and even um, Dr. Maynard next week, we should ask him this question, because he's, he's the guy who's done his PhD in church history. Um, but, you know, just thinking through like the history of theological education has, you know, really hasn't, we haven't deviated much in the last 500 years since the Reformation or even prior to that. Oh, no. And, and, and so we're, we're kind of dealing with really like medieval ways of, of learning and educating and teaching. Mm -hmm. and, and I feel like we're just kind of beginning to begin the cusp of rethinking through how do we educate um, for the future and how do we educate for the needs of the, of the church and the theological needs of the day? Um, that to me seems like the pressing concern. I, I want to just jump in because I think, I think you're right, Matt. And um, if I can, <laughs> as I'm like looking around at the, who is at this table. So I am at an SBC church and so many of our seminaries that exist today are the things that exist to continue the institutions, right? So they exist to continue to keep the thing alive that it's a part of. And so the seminaries are the place that people can get trained to further understand what it takes to be successful in that institution. And then we will send you out to fill our denominational uh, churches and fill those pulpits and to continue. So the theological education is a means to the end of continuing the institution. Now, I, I'm speaking, again, at an SBC church. Uh, there are SBC seminaries. Not all of the seminaries that exist 
are purely denominational. But I think at, at some level, they still do operate to how do we keep these, how do we prepare these people to thrive in the institutions that we have? And I think one of the things, Matt, that you were getting at as we were about to kick it over to Michael, I, I just think seminaries at large are now having to really grapple with, are we preparing them to actually take the gospel forward in all of its different ways and facets? Or have we just try, been trying to continue a medieval system? Yeah. Uh, gosh, I don't know, even know where to go with that, Andrew, because I, I mean, you're you're right. I can remember, Matt, when we were at the Wheaton, uh, whatever that was, the uh, Send Institute think tank. Uh, one of the things that came out of uh, that think tank was how irrelevant seminaries were because of the system of education, you know, it was yeah, well, the impression of the seminary being ir irrelevant, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Because it's producing pastors. And uh, we were all there talking about church planting and recognizing that uh, seminaries do an incredible job producing pastors. Um, and, you know, all the, the seminaries that we all attended uh, and many more do just an absolute wonderful job of uh, producing pastors for churches. Um, I can remember, this is interesting. I can remember uh, being on the pastoral search committee years ago at a small church in Northern Illinois. And uh, we were interviewing a, uh, uh, a candidate who uh, was just finishing up his seminary degree at a very respected uh, unnamed seminary that we all know. Um, and uh, he, out of the gate, he was expecting this little church to pay him $60,000 a year. And, uh, and so that's what, I, I mean, we've, we, we uh, educate pastors that uh, are graduating with incredible debt. And so they need to be in churches unless they have some means to pay off that debt. Uh, or, the, or they have significant endowments like what we see at many of the SBC schools uh that uh, can you know help to reduce that that challenge for uh, pastors and so they they by necessity almost have to graduate now there are those of us who are crazy like me who was a missionary going to seminary uh who didn't have any money to really pay for seminary uh and just trusted the lord and said you know uh, the lord will will provide and he has and we're grateful for that and that's one of the issues uh, that that we're seeing in theological education and not just the accessibility um not just you know the training of pastors to go into the pastorate to do pulpit ministry but also the cost of seminary uh it, it's just gone it's just skyrocketed over the years we we should we should move this conversation a little bit of along here, but I think like when we for all the reasons you stated, and this is also a bit of a, a the drumbeat that we are constantly having on this podcast and together is that the calculus, the formulas, the modes, the methodologies, the the frameworks, the the system is all in disarray. And it's not just in disarray because some of the forces at play and somebody wants to, you know, like 
undo the church. It's just that the church is finally beginning to wake it up to the fact that it's been using some pretty outdated systems and an incompatibility with the world in which it exists in. And therefore, the methodologies that did exist prior to served a particular purpose in, in, in passion for individuals and needs it is now the world is moving beyond those particular needs. And now the church, if it hopes to retain any sort of meaningful influence in the world in which it exists, needs to also adapt itself. And just as it did back in the Reformation and said, oh, if we actually begin to educate more ministers, and if you're like John Calvin or, or Wesley, um, and you are creating these bands of people who are then uh, learning the scriptures and learning how to disciple other people for a time period in which most people were just now getting their hands on the Bible and could read it in their own language for the first time. Thank you, the Gutenberg Press. You suddenly need a new method, a need, you know, and now the Catholic Church, where who only had the who the very few individuals in, in that knew how to read Latin, uh, were no longer the only disseminators of God's word. And so, with that, you know, we're 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 moving beyond those days, and now access is to everybody. Uh, theological information is available. Um, diverse ideas are are widely available and free to consume and take in. And people now have different needs based on how they're going to choose to interact with theology, with spirituality, in a different, in very very different ways. And the church has been really slow, even though it's sought to adapt. It's been slow to to to, to change, and so. That I think begets this question, and that is, what are the needs of like? What does even the future church look like? Because I think that that's the com that's the question. If we're going to be educators, if it, you know me working for a seminary, if we are going to be educators and we're going to educate uh, Christian leaders or those who want to learn more about theology, then what are we educating them for? What are we educating them to? Uh, are we still serving their needs? Is is the question that we always have to ask ourselves. But then also, too, is ephesiology. What is it that we're hoping to do? And what is it we hope to serve and what need? What, what is the end goal? What is the gain? What, where is the church going? And where does the church need to go? And are we, are we influencing that? Are we, or are we just trying to adapt to some sort of temporary, everyone go on Zoom for the next two years uh, while we sort this COVID thing out, you know, um, which is a great quick pivot, but not the solution that is necessary for the next, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. I find it uh, so yeah. funny. Well, think, okay. To you, Michael. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think part of the, the challenge that we face is really, uh, and we were getting at this a moment ago when we were talking about learning and uh, systems of learning and how that evolved. But, but uh, of course, rooting ourselves in scripture. And, and I think there's a common misperception that uh, the early church wasn't educated uh, and the church planters of the early church weren't educated. And so therefore we don't need to be educated to, to do that. And I think that's, a, that's a, a really a mistake uh, in, in terms of how we would view scripture. You, you refer, just for clarity, you're talking yeah. about like the, the early apostles, like apostle, like yeah. John, sure. Paul. Yeah. I mean, here are guys that walk with Christ for three years and, uh, and then are launched out. Uh, you think of the apostle Paul after his conversion, 
uh, and then up until the time that he connects with Barnabas. Some suggest that as many as 14 years go by. And of course, he was educated in the rabbinic school of uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Gamaliel. What's his name? Yeah, there you go. And uh, and so there was education that took place. But but uh, scriptures replete with with uh, uh, the importance of education. You think of Hebrews six. I was reading this the other morning. Six uh, one. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity or completeness, is the Greek word there. And so there is progression. There's knowledge to be gained uh, and benefit from that knowledge to help deepen our faith in in the Lord and so on. And then I think it's also interesting to look at the trajectory that these types of things, like the Hebrew writer was suggesting, that we need to deepen and move beyond elementary uh, doctrinal issues uh, to, to see what actually evolves in the church. And so you think of of uh, the different academies that end up emerging. Uh, Justin starts one in Rome and and uh, others in Alexandria uh, and Antioch. Uh, they, they, but, but the interesting thing here is what they were not educating pastors. They were educating everybody. And so education was for uh, as much for the layperson who who surpri- not surprisingly would end up in ministry because you know the the leaders of the church were typically the most educated but their initial intention in going was just simply to learn about Christianity and to defend the faith against the the cultural issues that were going on at in the 1st and 2nd centuries and and those types of things so i think there's a great precedence for theological education uh, from the first century into the second century, and of course, into the third and and so on. I think where we go sideways is that, like you were saying, Matt, theological education shifted just simply to prepare pastors. Um, And and we're seeing uh, the, the results of that now. Pastors who really were academics of their day, um, and and so that kind of goes back to you know Andrew what you were saying is like I this seminary is training up these academics you know and um, which again nothing wrong with if you want to pursue academia right um, but realizing that that may not be always the need for every congregation and every particular purpose um, for the education um, but education evolves too I mean and I, and I think that's part of the tension that exists is this sense of like, well, if we're going to continue to pursue theological education, you know, if, you know, Michael, you're citing first century, you know, learning. Uh, on, based on the knowledge, podcast? No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> base level, base level educational standards, whatever, you know, if you can even equate them, like, is this so different? I mean, yes, there was reading and writing and arithmetic, but I mean, it, it's just so different. And the common knowledge that exists today is so much greater. We're having this conversation actually as a family and with our kids and, and you know, kind of navigating school. And um, it's just amazing when you think about like the common knowledge that already exists or that's at their fingertips. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, don't, they don't need to, 
there's certain things that were taught, you know, 20 years ago that they just don't even really need to understand how we got there, but they just can get access to the information, which then allows them to excel further. And if they want to become mathematicians and then learn how to do long division for, as an example, then they can go learn how to do long division. But in the meantime, yeah. they got a calculator in front of them. And I remember going to school and everyone's like, no, 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 we got to teach you how to do it before you do it on the calculator. Yeah. But now it's like, who cares? Every like this is this is technology. It exists today, and we don't expect our calculators and our computers to all crash at once, you know. And they're and we will relearn how to do it. And so I think when we think about the human experience, and we think about contextually where we are, even as society and as as people, where we're at, theology is going to be challenged. The theological growth and education is going to is going to be changed. It's going to be shaped. We're going to, and I think there's, and I wonder if there's the fear of that, right? Like we're afraid oh, of continuing sure. to learn and to grow, and then realize, oh, we've kind of hit the end of this, but now there's new information coming at us. Um, uh, science is, you know, and um, our science exp exploration and things like that are just kind of beginning to evolve and change and kind of challenge some of our presuppositions on certain things. And so we're now having to rethink certain, um, you know, fundamental belief on certain ideas, and we have to kind of go back to our scriptures and rethink through these things. So I think there's also just a fear that exists, like, well, if I learn too much, then I, I can't claim ignorance anymore. And I hate to sound so like negative, but I think that that is part of the part of the issue at, at stake. Well, first of all, as a Luddite, um, I still think writing and cursive and putting things on paper and understanding how to do math, uh, it does have value, Matt. So I am going to fully push back and be like, calculators are great, but you got to go. You got to understand how to do those things. So, uh, that is informing you're pure, how you're we are. You're Puritan at heart. I you're Puritan at heart. That's some fine. Some of those things should okay. die. Uh, but I, I, I'm not entirely convinced everybody is just and worried. And I didn't about say they don't have value. And no, I did not say they no, didn't have value. You didn't say that. But I thought <laughs> if someone's going to leave this podcast thinking that Michael and Andrew completely agree with Matt and all of his insane Understood. thoughts. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, but I also, fair. I also do believe you're, you're on, you're on track here. I, I think what we're seeing culturally at large is a whole bunch of people who um, are seeing what happens when a certain group of others starts educating themselves on some things and then the other people who didn't get oh, educated yeah. start freaking out um can we just put the three letters of crt where, out here where's adam grant uh right think again think again or, yeah or tom nichols the death of expertise and yeah. all of these things because you're right andrew i mean there and matt you touched on this there's so much information out there now and so the questions that I think that we have to be asking is, uh, where does that information come from? For one, is it good information? Uh, and then what do we do with it? Uh, what I mean, it's great to, you know, fill our brains, I suppose, with more knowledge. But what practically do we do with that information in our day-to-day -day lives as, as uh, we're in our communities and in our workplaces? And then I think another question that's important is uh, who is doing it that I can look at and say, oh, that's what that looks like. Because that's one of the things in first century and second century uh, education that we miss. And even, even uh, in the philosophical schools, they're going as far back as, as uh, Pythagoras in the sixth century BC. 
there was somebody to imitate. And so it was their lives, the virtue of their lives, the character of their lives, not just the things that they taught, but who they were as people that people, uh, their students could see and imitate. And, uh, and, and yeah, I think our theological education in some ways uh, is lacking in some of that practicality and, and imitation types of things that really make learning a great experience. So, so if, I, if, if, if somebody is listening right now, who's been really thinking, been tracking with physiology, the ideas that we um, have really brought to the table and are really interested in like, Hey, I've been, I'm sitting on the outside or I'm a leader in my church. Or I've been really thinking about kind of being a part of a, of a new movement or a wave of church planting. What would we be encouraging that individual to be doing to pursuing in terms of furthering their education and furthering their, to, to get them equipped or to make, I'll help them feel equipped, ready for the task at hand? What, what are some of those things that we might encourage that person to do? Well, if that's not a softball pitch right over the middle of the plate, I don't know what is. Underhanded. Um, yeah. Or wiffle ball, maybe. But wiffle of ball. Course, wiffle, yeah. wiffle ball was hard, though, sometimes, especially if you were playing baseball. Yeah. You know, you'd swing that bat. And... You really think you're going to go yard, and then you barely yeah. clear the bases. Uh, let, me, let me just put so... this on the tee for you, Michael. <laughs> right. I'm just going to put it right there on the, on the batting tee. We're going to start from yeah. the beginning. Yep. Well, I think two things. One, uh, and that's one of the reasons why we're having uh, Scott Maynard on with us is that we've developed this a great partnership with Knox Theological Seminary to offer a certificate in church planting that transfers into two of their degree programs. And so, I, I mean, I think that's a great place to start. And then, uh, of course, we're having Greg Henson on because we've developed a partnership with Kairos University as well to offer an MA that's focused on church planting, uh, as well as an MDiv and a DMIN. And, uh, and we're excited about those partnerships um, and looking forward to having more of those conversations with other seminaries as well. But, but why is seminary education at this point? I mean, we've been kind of talking about, about this a little bit, but I feel like we haven't really fully addressed it. Um, and I realize I'm, you know, kind of, yeah. kind of in an odd position to ask this question, but like, but why? Like, I mean, if somebody who's sitting there going like, I, you know, my, my pastor's a great leader. He's had me read all the books that he's, you know, he or she's been reading. I've been, you know, tracking with these other individuals. I listen to physiology. I take a couple of the master classes. Like, why do I need anything else beyond? Why do I need a certificate? Why do I need a piece of paper that says, this on it when I feel like I've got enough to go with, because at the end of the day, I want to do, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to start a house church or I'm going to do an alternative kind of approach to some sort of other level of ministry that is not going to be in the traditional sense. Why? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the question that many people ask in relationship to theological education. And, and I think there are two ways to answer it. One is, well, maybe you don't need theological education. Uh, to, to do what it is that you sense the Lord leading you to do. And that could very well be. I mean, I know some very bright people that are in ministry who have not attended seminary and, uh, and they're doing incredible things uh, for the Lord in ministry. But that doesn't mean that they weren't informally educated. 
and uh, and oftentimes that kind of rigorous study of scripture and having good uh, resources uh, that to consult as you're studying scripture and to think through the application of those things in the in your particular context, I I think it can be just as beneficial as uh, as attending seminary. Now, then on the second. Uh, uh, point. I think, you know, and I used to say this in my classes uh, with my students, that um, I, I would say something to the effect that you would not want a physician operating on you who made a D in their physiology class. Uh, you would not want an electrician to come and wire your house if they did not have some certification uh, that they can actually do what it is that they're saying that they can do. And so I think for others, there's going to be a desire to have an expertise in the area of church planting or ministry or pastoral ministry or missions or, or other areas, or they just want to have an expertise to uh, go deeper with the cultural issues that they're engaging and that's, I mean, that's what we do. Uh, we've studied those things, we're, we're uh, given to those things, and we really want to help people to, uh, to mature, uh, move from those elementary doctrines to uh, completeness as they're thinking about how they apply uh, Christ in culture. And so I think um, there are going to be those who will have that desire for that sort of expertise. I think there's one, and I want to touch on this. Thank you for bringing up that Hebrews passage again. Um, I also do want to encourage people, like if if you are if you are listening to this and you're like, no, but seriously, I still don't feel like I need a degree. Um, it's also okay to be like, I actually do need to brush up on those elementary doctrines, right? Like it's okay to feel like you need to go and study the Bible more or have a better understanding of the flow of scripture and what all is there. Like, please don't feel that just because you were older or that wasn't what you did in college that you can just, you just need to start up. Right. And just go, go for that MA degree or go for that MDiv or anything like that. Like it's okay, but it's okay also to feel like I do need to start with those foundational pieces. I do need to, to brush up on that. And um, so be encouraged. You don't need to feel like you have to go. It's all or nothing. Um, start with some of those building blocks. But I think on the second thing, Michael, to summarize everything that you have said, it's a practicality thing. It, it's a, it will help you practice um, your faith. Um, we really want people to be loving others and pushing the good news of Jesus Christ and helping people know him and be discipled uh, towards him. Um, doing some of these degrees, getting these certificates will help you practice. So it's it's a essentially like helping give you the tools to actually accomplish the task that you want. And and you'll need that. And so we want to help you with that. I think one of the things that I I feel like when I reflect back on my seminary education, which I'm very grateful for, is my initial motivation to it was to um, it was based on encouragement from um, existing church leadership that I was serving with um, to meet a standard 
that they believe that they held, but also was assumed upon as part of the broader church institution. So I was trying to meet that standard. Um, the other part of it was also feeling a bit inadequate and a bit under-equipped. And so I too wanted to grow and I wanted to learn. And I knew I'd go into it also trying to find and determine, give me the right, not just tools, which I think is a great word, Andrew, um, is I needed the tools, but I also need to know how to use those tools and to arrive at the right, the correct conclusions. And when I came out of it, I look back and I look back at my time and I think I accomplished you make it sound like prison. Yeah. <laughs> after, after I did my time, no, it, yeah, sorry. That's not how that felt at all. <laughs> when I, when I was finished, I realized that while I may have accomplished a number of these things, I actually often came out with more questions than I had answers. Mm -hmm. And when I reflect on the greatest value that seminary offered me, it was not just about how to use the tools, which I gained. Not that I arrived at all the correct answers, which I felt like I came away with some level of certainty in areas that maybe I wasn't certain on. But it, most importantly, it gave me the freedom and it taught me how to think. And that was something that I had always taken for granted. Like, well, I'm a thinking person. I know how to think. I know how to read a book. But when I encountered diverse opinions and diverse ideas, and it challenged some of my own presuppositions of perhaps even the tribe or the particular denomination I was a part of, it with, in, in all charity, uh, helped me think about those things more critically. And Michael, you hit on this too, is this idea of critical thinking and critical analysis and weighing the options and realizing that as much as I look to and assume that maybe I can gain some sort of level of certainty here, it wasn't about the certainty, it was actually about the ability to think and to think for myself and to explore um, deeper and to arrive at perhaps even different conclusions than what I had either been taught or was even being told prior to that, uh, to my time there. Yeah, and I, I think that, that, that to me is worth its weight in gold. And mm -hmm. I would do it all over again. Mm -hmm. And um, I would keep doing it. And actually I have in my own way is, and part of that is I'm chastened and, and encouraged by my time with you guys. That's why I love the, our, you know, Michael, your mantra, we do theology and community. It's because it doesn't end. The learning doesn't end. The thinking doesn't end. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I, that's my greatest value is I learned how to think. And I think actually, unfortunately, the seminaries that look more like indoctrination camps, and I say that with a pretty rough edge, I understand, but I think those that look to, you know, fulfill a denominational need and that denominational's narrow approach um, and narrow doctrinal stances, I think are the ones that are, that are suffering the most and will suffer the most um, only because they're, they're pursuing, uh, I don't think they're, they're choosing how to help people think. And um, I think that's the seminary of the future.
Yeah, I, you know what, I would 100% agree with that, Matt. And, and I would add, you know, as you were talking about these things, I was thinking, you know, what, what, what was my big takeaway from seminary? And I think what seminary did for me, uh, it made me think, but it made me curious. Mm-hmm. I mean, I am so curious about what God is doing in the world. What about how, why he wrote, why he gave us the things that he gave us in scripture and what that means for us today. And so that curiosity, it, it, it's energizing. I, I love exploring and digging in deeply and uh, trying to figure these things out. And it, yeah, I think seminary does that. Absolutely. Andrew, what do you got? Last thought. Well, hilariously, I had, uh the late Jim Spencer, uh, friend, mentor. Um, he was the first principal and CEO at my high school. That's actually what my high school existed to do was to help people think and think critically and ask the right questions. So I'm sitting here laughing as I'm listening to you and Michael. And I was like, well, I got, I got that at covenant in high school. So I feel like I was spoiled, uh, because that then wasn't what I needed to learn when I got to seminary. Um, but I'm laughing because I think what what you were saying, uh, they attempted to teach you the right things, right? To come to what they thought to be the right conclusions. Um, but at my time, I had leading scholars in each of their fields who disagreed with each other vehemently, and those were my professors. And so uh, it actually was pretty great because you would go from one class where one person said, this is right, this is how I interpret scripture, and this is how I think you should. And then you would close your books and you would go down the hall and hear somebody say the exact opposite thing uh, oh. just as passionately and winsomely. And I think I left seminary uh, with the encouragement that we may not all land on the exact spot, but we are being encouraged to dive deep into God's word, to understand the flow of scripture, how it holds together and then take that into the communities that God has put us and encourage people to chase after Jesus. And I think that coming alongside Ness uh, is, is a massive and critical portion of what theological education is going to look like moving forward. It has to come alongside where we are. It has to equip us. And I really appreciate that thought of not just giving the tools, but how to use them. Um, not saying what the right end is, but just this is what you've got. If we don't have an education that comes alongside where we are to equip our people where they are, then it is useless and we are just playing games. And so I am more and more encouraged to continue to be educated so that we can equip our people where they are to be the hands and feet of Christ where God has put them. Yeah, yeah, that's a good word. And, uh, yeah, and I think it'll be a fundamental shift, I think, for a lot of churches as well and, and uh, leaders of the future. But ultimately, that's the journey that we're on, right? As those who are leaders, we're on the journey. And uh, those who are looking and searching, uh, they too are on a journey. And it's meeting them where they're at and walking on that journey with them as well. And um, perhaps coming off of some of those rigid certainties that we thought we had, uh, being open to change and being okay with that and being okay with um, exploring it together as a community. So that's great. Andrew, thanks so much. 
Um, you know, and also to Michael as well. Uh, he had to hop off here just in the last uh, minute uh, to head to something else, but um, we we got everything we needed out of him. And we're looking forward to the next two episodes uh, with interviews. And I think this is going to be a good series for us. So to our listeners, thanks so much for doing Theology and Community with us here on the Ephesiology Podcast. And for Andrew, Michael, and myself, we will catch you next time on the Ephesiology Podcast.